Well, uh, good morning. Uh, this is a really uh, special and a beautiful day for our church. And uh, I just want to extend a special welcome to all the friends and uh, f- uh, family members of those who are going to be baptized. Uh, and just for the guests who are here today, I just want to ex- extend a special welcome. We're really glad that you're here with us. Well, we're going to go into um, our sermon message today. And the sermon title is Liberty and Love, Part 1. <laughs> and uh, the reason why I've entitled it that way is because we're going to take a look at Romans 14. And for the next two weeks, we're going to look at this incredible passage. And uh, in Romans 14, Paul is making uh, two arguments, actually. And he has a major argument, and then he has a, a minor argument. And uh, we're going to do something a little bit unusual today, which is that we're going to ignore and sort of set aside the major argument, uh, which is kind of the main thrust of the passage, and we're going to focus in on the the minor argument, the minor point, uh, which is Christian liberty, right? So next week we're going to talk about Christian love. And the reason why I'm doing this is because, um, well, I think that uh, we can learn a lot, you know, from this underlying kind of almost presupposition uh, behind this passage, and I think we can derive a lot of benefit from it. Um, and so uh, uh, I'm going to try to preach this uh, in a very abbreviated way. Uh, it's going to be a very short message um, because I don't want to lengthen the service too long, so hopefully that happens. And so as I go through the message, if you feel like I'm not doing uh, the text justice, if you feel like I'm ignoring major parts of the text, that's the reason why, okay? So... <laughs> um, all right, so with all those caveats in mind, let's, let's dive into our text. Uh, the preaching text is from Romans 14, uh, page 4 in your bulletins. I'll start reading from verse 1. You guys can follow along. This is uh, what Paul, the Apostle Paul writes. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who abstains, I'm sorry, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brethren? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. 
For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us, pers- let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. This is the word of God. All right, so wow, that was, that was a long passage. Um, so again, we're focusing on the minor argument here. And here's my outline, three points. Point number one, um, we're going to look at the context and we're going to see how Paul defines the weak and the strong. And then point number two, we're going to see the problem of legalism. Okay, if you want to know what this, how to spell that, it's L-E-G-A-L-I-S-M. And then point number three, we're going to see that the solution is to go deep into the gospel. Okay, so point number one, the context, the definition of weak and strong. Point number two, the problem of legalism. And then point number three, what is the solution, which is to go deep into the gospel. All right, so point number one, the context. Now, uh, Paul is writing to the church at Rome. And the church at Rome is being ripped apart, is being torn apart by this controversy, by this argument. And there are two factions, there are two camps in this argument. And they're mutually despising one another, they're judging one another, they're condemning one another. And Paul calls these two groups the weak and the strong. Now, uh, what was this dispute about? It was over three different issues. And uh, it was over three different issues. And the the first issue was over whether or not Christians should observe special holy days. We see that in verse 5. It was over whether or not Christians should eat meat. That's verse 2. And then it was over whether or not uh, Christians should ever drink wine. Verse 21. And so what is this about, right? You know, what is this about? And it's about, it basically goes back to the Old Testament, In the Old Testament, what you have is these clean laws. And the clean laws are about food and other matters. And and so that's the Old Testament, right? But when you get to uh, the New Testament and you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus very clearly, right, very categorically declared that all foods are clean. So that the purpose of these clean laws is to prepare the people of God to understand the gospel, right? So that when Jesus has finally arrived, Jesus says that all those old ceremonial laws are no longer valid. They no longer apply. They've been fulfilled in Christ. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in verse 14, he says, nothing in itself is unclean. However, there was a group of Christians uh, at Rome, and they couldn't let go. And even though they believed the gospel, they still couldn't 
let go and they still felt like those Old Testament clean laws were still valid and they still applied. And more than that, and this is very important, more than that, they began to add on to those laws. So that they said, if it is wrong to eat meat and to drink wine under certain situations, under certain circumstances, according to the clean laws, then isn't it better to never eat meat and to never drink wine, right? Isn't that safer? And so they began to say that it is a sin to ever touch meat and to ever drink wine. Now the Apostle Paul calls, these, uh, calls this group the weak in faith. And uh, I think that's so amazing. It's so astonishing because Paul uses that word weak in an almost completely opposite way from the way we use it today, right? Because when someone says a weak Christian, what do we mean, right? When we say so-and-so is a weak Christian, we mean that that person uh, very easily gives in to temptations, right? That that person doesn't take uh, the Christian faith seriously, right? That that person is very too loose, too relaxed about keeping God's law. But the Apostle Paul, when he uses the word weak, he's thinking of someone who is too rigid, someone who is too strict about the law. And right there, immediately, that clues us in, that Paul is just on a completely different wavelength than than us. He's thinking in just completely different categories about the law and about salvation than we are. And I think that's really exciting and really interesting because the Apostle Paul is showing us a new paradigm, a new way of thinking about the law, a new way of thinking about salvation. All right, so that's the first point. That's the context. Are you guys ready? Okay, are you excited, all right? So that leads me to point number two, which is uh, the problem with legalism. Now, the problem with the weak in faith is that they were legalists. Now, what is legalism? Um, I have to be very uh, careful and very precise because the definitions are very important, okay? Um, there's actually, if you read the Bible, there's actually two kinds of legalisms, Okay. Um, so level one legalism, okay, that's my own term, but level one legalism is this idea that you are saved because of your obedience to the law, right? You're saved because you're saved by being a good person. And that level one legalism flies straight up against the gospel, right? It's totally anti-gospel uh, because the gospels that were saved by grace, Right? Now, level two legalism, which is what we see in our passage today, okay? Level two legalism is where you add on to the law, okay? Where you add on restrictions and rules. And this is essentially what the weak in faith were doing here in Rome. And it isn't straight up against the gospel, right? It isn't like the anti-gospel like level one legalism is. But it's kind of related because it flows out from an incomplete understanding of the gospel. Now, some of you are at this point scratching your heads and saying, well, that's so abstract. Can you give me some examples? Um, <laughs> and uh, I hesitate uh, to actually give you some examples because um, if I give you some examples, it may be the case where you say, I don't think that's legalism. <laughs> and I don't want you guys to get kind of bogged down and sort of be, you know, obsessed about the examples. I don't know if that's actually legalism. Because then, you know, that's not the point of my message. I'm not focusing on any particular individual kind of legalism. I'm focusing on the problem of legalism as 
It is, okay? But with all those warnings, let me actually give you some examples, okay? Because, because it's helpful, okay? It's helpful. I mean, what does it mean to add rules and regulations to the Bible? All right. I have three examples. Example number one. The Bible says, do not be worldly, right? Do not absorb the values of this world. Ah, the legalist says. If that's the case, you should never listen to non-Christian music. You should never watch secular movies, right? Example number two. The Bible says that sex is a beautiful, wonderful gift to be enjoyed only in the context of a marriage covenant, right? In other words, no premarital sex. Ah, the legalist says. If that's the case, then you should never date like in the modern sense, right? You should, there should be no dating allowed. Example number three. The Bible says um, drunkenness is a sin, right? To abuse alcohol is a sin. Ah, the legalist says, if drunkenness is a sin, then it is also a sin to even drink alcohol at all. Now, um, I think of the three examples, probably uh, the third example is the one that's maybe the most common example of legalism that we see in the church today. And uh, it's actually interesting because it's the one that maybe fits in the most with our actual passage, right? Because Paul talks about uh, drinking alcohol. Now, again, now, before I proceed, I want to be very careful once again to say that this form of legalism, right, this level two legalism, the legalism that we see in Romans 14, okay, these people believe the gospel. Okay? I'm not questioning their salvation or their faith because notice what Paul, how Paul calls the weak in faith. What does he call them? He calls them brothers. They're brothers in Christ. Okay? So they believe the gospel, but they don't fully work out the implications of the gospel. Okay? So here we go. What's the problem with legalism? Listen carefully. The problem with legalism is that it downplays the reality of sin. And it actually has a very low view of the law. Now, I know that sounds deeply paradoxical. Because if anything, when we think of legalists, we think of people who are dead serious about sin and, are, and dead serious about the law. But, you know, I want you to hang with me, okay? Because this is going to stretch you a little bit, okay? You know, I'm, this is going to cook your noodle, Okay? Follow along with the argument, okay? Follow along, because this is going to sound really paradoxical, contradictory to the way we think, okay? What is the problem with legalism? The problem with legalism is that it focuses merely on the outward behavior. Legalism, by adding on rules and regulations, actually misses the entire point of the law. Let's go back. When was the first law given? Let's go back to the story of the garden. Do you remember the story of, of Eve and the serpent? The serpent comes up to Eve, right? And he says to her, did God really say you cannot partake of the fruit? And then Eve responds by saying, yes. God told us that we cannot eat of the forbidden fruit and we may not even touch it. And if we do, we will die. Do you see what Eve just did? Nowhere in the story, nowhere in the Bible did God ever say, don't touch the forbidden fruit. But Eve adds that extra rule on, right? Eve is actually the world's first legalist. And 
When Eve did that, she was missing the point because what was the point of the fruit? What was the point of the fruit? Was it the case that the fruit itself was evil? Right? Was it the case that the fruit had like evil juice in it? And the moment someone partook of the fruit, the evil juice would flow into the body and then you would become evil. Right? If that's the case, if the fruit itself was evil, then it makes sense that Eve would say, oh, we shouldn't eat the evil fruit and... We shouldn't even touch the evil fruit. I mean, who knows? Maybe it'll get on your finger or something, right? Do you see what she did? She completely externalized what God said, and she missed the point. What was the point of the law? The point of the fruit was that it was a test of the heart. God was asking Adam and Eve, will you love me? Will you believe me? Will you trust me? Here's the fruit. It's no different than any of the fruits in the garden. It's not evil. There's nothing wrong with this fruit. But to show me that you love me and you will obey me, don't eat of this fruit. That's all I'm asking. And so the problem of legalism is that it focuses merely on the externals, merely on the behavior and not on the real issue, which is the heart. The heart. That's why the Apostle Paul says in verse 16 in our passage, he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. In other words, it's not a matter of mere behavior. It's not a matter of merely the act of eating. But what does Paul say? It is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy. And Paul says pretty much the exact same thing in that very famous passage in 1 Corinthians 10.31, right? Paul says... So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do in this life, do it all to the glory of God. That's the point. The point of any behavior, of eating and drinking, or whatever you do, will you do it to the glory of God? Will you do it in absolute faith and reliance and trust in Him? And that's why the Apostle Paul in verse 23 says something that when we read it sounds puzzling, but it makes sense if you understand it in this paradigm. Paul says in verse 23, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The Apostle Paul says something incredibly astonishing. He says, you legalists, you guys think that if you eat, or drink certain wrong things, that's the sin? No, no, let me tell you. Even if you eat the right stuff, even if you only eat vegetables and drink only water, if it, if it is not from faith, it is a sin. Does that make sense? The real issue is the heart. It's the motivations. It's the reasons. It's the desires behind the behavior, not the behavior itself. And so, going back, so, you know, let me pick on the whole thing with alcohol. So, yes, it is a sin to abuse alcohol. It is a sin to, to be drunk. Why? Because you're drinking in an absolute selfish way. You're elevating uh, your own pleasures and your own desires as the ultimate, and you're not at all thinking about the glory of God. You're not at all thinking about the devastating effects that will have upon your friends and upon your family members. right? So yes, drinking to excess is a sin, but it is also possible 
that you never touch alcohol at all and to do it out of moral pride, to do it out of a self-sufficiency that not at all thinks about the glory of God and you're not at all thinking about love and service to other people. And so therefore, okay, this is astonishing. I mean, this is going to, I mean, think this through with me. Therefore, it is possible that the very same sin, which is selfishness, can manifest itself in two different behaviors, right? One person drinks too much alcohol. The other person never touches alcohol at all. And the world, because it only focuses on external behavior, looks at these two people, and they don't see that they're the same thing. And so the world says, that guy is a sinner, that guy is righteous. But the Bible says, no, they're both unrighteous. Do you see that? And so legalists, by adding on to the law, by adding extra rules and regulations, I know this sounds very paradoxical, but it actually diminishes the reality of sin. Because it defines sin merely as doing wrong things rather than doing things in the wrong way. Let me say that again, okay? Legalists diminish the power of sin because it defines sin as doing wrong things rather than doing things in the wrong way. Or to put it another way, you can sin both by doing what is evil and you can sin by doing what looks good but with an evil heart. Okay? So, are you guys tracking with me? I mean, are you guys, like, do you guys, are you guys following the argument? Okay? Let me make, let me, let me press this further, okay? And let me make the same argument, but let me approach it from a different way. In the Gospels, there's this story where a, a young man comes to Jesus and he says, a Rabbi, which is the most important commandment? Do you remember that story? Which is the most important commandment? And what the man was essentially asking was, Jesus, there's just so many laws in the Bible. You know, the rabbis counted over 600 different laws. There's just so many laws. It's so overwhelming. Can you please simplify it for me? Can you please make it more manageable for me? And then Jesus says, okay. The most important law, the most important commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no more important commandment than these. And, I, and it doesn't record the young man's reaction, but I could just imagine that he was just so disappointed, so crestfallen, because what the man was asking Jesus was this. Jesus, can you just please pluck out one commandment above the rest? You know, can you just say the really important commandment is don't murder? You know, and all the rest, they're of secondary importance, but make sure you don't murder. Or the really important commandment is that you don't steal. And as long as you keep that, the rest is sort of, you know, of secondary importance. But what does Jesus do? Jesus makes the law impossibly hard to keep. Jesus says it's not about the behavior, it's about the heart. So that in all things, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your strength. And so the law, as it is, if you properly understand it, is devastating. You don't have to add on to it. You don't have to help it. The law, as it is, if you understand it, is devastating because it means you cannot keep it. It is impossible to keep because it's about the heart, not behavior. And who among us 
lives like that. You see, the problem with legalism is that it misses the whole point. What is the point of the law? The point of the law is not to make you righteous. The point of the law is to make you realize that you are utterly unrighteous. All right, then. So what is our hope? What will free us from the tyranny of the law? You know, what will stop us from our natural bent to becoming legalists? Because we all want to manipulate and we all want to manage the law in our own ways to make it easier to follow. So what will free us? And this leads me to my third point, which is the solution is to go deep into the gospel. All right? What is the gospel? The gospel is that you are worse than you think. You are more lost and more sinful than you can possibly imagine and you can possibly know. But at the very same time, you are more loved and more cherished in Christ by God than you can ever possibly dare hope. Do you see? Not because of your moral performance, but because of what Christ has done for you. You see, the gospel is not that it's a second chance. Have you guys ever heard that expression, the gospel is a second chance? I hear that all the time. The gospel is a second chance. What does that mean? I guess what it means is that God has forgiven your sins. He's pardoned you so that you know, now you have a, a clean slate. You have a fresh start. You have a second chance, right? You messed up your first chance. Now God is giving you a second chance. And God is saying, go and live righteously. Go and obey the law and be righteous. If that is your understanding of the gospel, you will naturally become a legalist. Okay? I know this sounds paradoxical. You will naturally become a legalist. Why? Because if it all depends upon your righteousness and obedience to the law, you will do everything you can to make that law achievable, easy to follow. And you do that by adding on extra rules and regulations because you're making it all about the behavior and not about the heart. But you see... Don't you see, the gospel is not a second chance. Because the only thing a second chance would do for us is condemn us twice. The gospel is that Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourself, which is he, gave you, which is he lived a perfect life. So that at every moment of Jesus' life, in every thought, in every situation, Jesus lived to the glory of God and in absolute service and love to others. And because Jesus is our substitute, because Jesus stands in our place, all of our sin and guilt is placed on Jesus, and his righteousness and perfect record is placed on us. Does that make sense? The gospel is an exchange. It's substitution. And therefore, Jesus gets what only we deserve, which is death on the cross. And then we get what only he deserves, which is life eternal. The gospel is an exchange. And when your heart dwells on that, when your heart soaks in that gospel and meditates on that gospel, you'll be free. You will know what it means to be free in Christ, and you will know what Christian liberty is. And as you understand the gospel and dwell upon the gospel, your heart will be transformed so that now you can really enjoy the good gifts of creation rather than twisting it, abusing it, and distorting it. 
so that now you won't be so hypercritical of other people and you won't be so judgmental against other people because your standing does not depend on putting other people down and therefore looking good by comparison. And if you understand the gospel, you would repent joyfully and, and quickly. You know why? Because the legalist hates to repent. The legal it's like a mortal danger to them to ever repent. They can never admit they're wrong. Why? Because they're depending not on their righteousness. They're depending not on Christ's righteousness, but on their own. And if they're, de- if they're depending on their own righteousness, then they will never, ever accept blame. They can never admit that they're wrong because it's a mortal th- threat to their very identity, which is that they are a righteous person. But if you believe the gospel and someone points out where you are wrong, someone points out your sin, because you are depending on Christ's righteousness and not your own, you will rejoice and you will repent happily. You know why? Because every time you repent, you experience the gospel anew. You get to go deeper into grace. Do you see? That's the gospel. That's how the gospel works. And so what's my point? Let me sum it up for you guys. I don't want you to read this passage and say, aha, there are some people in the church who are legalists. I'm not a legalist. You're missing the point. All of us, all of us, you and me, all of us have this tendency, this bent to become legalists. Why? Because all of us who believe, who, who believe in Jesus, right, all of us start out believing the gospel, But somewhere along the line, and it happens to all of us, somewhere along the line, we forget. And then we we began to start depending on our own record of obedience. And when that happens, you become a legalist. Because that's how you make the law easy to follow. And what is the solution? The solution is to go deep into the gospel. That's why here at Indelible Grace Church, you know, our core value, our kind of a, the motto of this church is that we're a gospel-centered church. And what does that mean? It means that the gospel is not only to tell non-Christians and then they can become Christians. The gospel is for mature Christians. The gospel is for all of us, for all of life. We need to soak in it, meditate on it, go deeper into it, because you can never, ever fully exhaust it. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we confess that we so quickly forget the gospel. (laughs) But remind us and refresh us of this gospel truth, that Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died, died the death we should have died. And as we soak in that and meditate on that, Lord, may it transform our hearts. Make, may it make us a people who are just completely not judgmental, who embrace everyone, Uh, who is never threatened, who repents joyfully and quickly and from the heart. Make us a gospel-driven people. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.